The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like for you to open your Bibles now to Paul's letter to the Ephesian Church, chapter 6. And we continue our study of Christian warfare today. And I might describe this as involuntary warfare because obviously you don't desire it and you didn't start it. You're thrust into this because there will never be any peace between God and Satan. And if you are a Christian, you are in the fight of your life because there is a relentless enemy who tries to steal your soul. Now, our past messages have been about this conflict, which begins the moment that you put your faith in Christ and it ends when the last breath expires from your body. We may not desire the fight. We would rather not be bothered with the hardships of it. But be assured that the enemy doesn't think this way. The enemy wants to fight. He wants to conquer. And he'll not ignore you because you want to be a passive Christian who prefers to let God take care of things and for everybody to leave you alone. No, you don't get the, the, the choose to sit passively by because God's method of taking us to heaven requires steadfast perseverance in the faith. A believer is to be sanctified and never removed away from the hope of the gospel. And if you would just hold your place there in Ephesians just a moment and turn a few pages over to Colossians chapter 1, uh, here Paul discusses the requirement of perseverance in the faith. In Colossians 1, through 23, he writes, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight if ye continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven whereof I, Paul, am made a minister." I want you to pay close attention to verse 23. To be sanctified, to be presented holy and unblameable and unreprovable in the Savior's sight. We must continue in the faith and not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. And you might ask, well, how was a Christian moved away from the hope of the gospel? And this is the very issue that we're studying. This is our perseverance. This is the fight. This is the conflict. And we can be moved away from our hope by the enemy. In fact, we will be moved away unless we diligently stand up and fight and do everything necessary to protect ourselves from the enemy that, that confronts us at every level of our Christianity. Perseverance is required of Christians, and this is the way we do it. We guard ourselves from defeat by fighting the good fight of faith. Now, in this warfare, there are unseen forces. Some are for us and some are against us. Satan, a fallen angel, has an army of, 
of hordes of demons that he uses to inflict personal pain and suffering. He engages the Christian in spiritual battles, in an emotional battle, in a psychological battle. All the faculties of man are fair game in his attacks. But on the other hand, he also, God has an unseen angelic army that fights for us. These are the holy elect angels who are under their commander, the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord Sabaoth, as Martin Luther said in his great hymn, A mighty fortress is our God. The Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, is the commander of the protecting angelic army. It's an innumerable host, and we're not even aware of the many times that they protected us against our unseen enemies. So we've discussed these legions of angels on both sides of the conflict, both the good and the bad, respectively. And they fight an unseen spiritual war, and we are in the middle. We are the prize to be won. The devil tries to tear us away from God, and the elect angels are God's army to prevent it from happening. Well, whose side of this conflict do you think that you're supposed to be on? Is it wise for you to be passive? No, we can't because we are required to persevere in the faith. Now, today I'd like to introduce you to the next area of our study that will take us into verse 13 and a discussion of the armor of God. I want to talk about the wiles of the devil. These are its methods of attack. And today we're going to concentrate on one method, which is how the devil uses doubt to destroy our faith. Our text verse is verse 11. We'll read verses 10 and 11, and then we'll concentrate on the last part of verse 11, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. In verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The subject is the wiles of the devil. Wiles, that's not a word that we often use in our modern vocabulary. I suppose the closest that we come is when we use it to describe the cartoon character, Wile E. Coyote. I think most of you that are my age, you know who Wile E. Coyote is. He's, he's the arch nemesis of the Roadrunner and the Looney Tunes cartoons. And despite all of his best tricks and deceitful tactics, he's never able to catch the Roadrunner. Wile E. Coyote has many wiles, and that refers to his tricks. It's his deceit, his methods of laying traps for the Roadrunner. And it's interesting that the scriptures refer to the snares of the devil, to the unsuspecting traps that he lays for us, and we don't often see them or realize they're there until it's too late. Now, our study today is about a specific, often used trap that Satan uh, has for Christians. I'm sure everyone listening has fallen into this trap at one time or another. And yet we must remember that there's always one overriding principle about Satan, and this should be encouraging to us. Satan has no more power than God allows, and his power is restricted more towards the saved than it is toward the lost. Now, before we talk about the saved, and of course the saved are the subjects of Ephesians 6, I want to briefly mention 
the lost. The lost are described in Scripture um, as people who hate God. Anyone who rejects salvation in Christ hates God because he refuses to submit to his sovereign authority. And even though they hate and refuse Christ, they still have much to thank the God they hate. Despite their rejection of him, God helps, God takes care of lost people. And one of the ways he does is by restricting the power of the devil. God doesn't allow the devil to do all he wants to do. Oh, yes, there is plenty of wickedness in the world, but we can't even imagine how much evil we're capable of. The Bible says that we don't know the depths of the depravity of the human heart. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know the depths of his deceit? And if God weren't merciful to prevent it, people would be far worse than they are. Now, Ephesians and many other Bible passages teach that all areas of our lives are affected by sin. There's nothing in us that's untouched by sin. The heart, the emotions, the intellect, the spirit, the will, all are desperately depraved. We are totally depraved. But total depravity doesn't mean that we are as wicked as we could be. God's power restrains people from being as wicked as they could be. And that's the reason there is marginal safety to walk down the street in the middle of the day. If God didn't restrain evil, if he didn't limit Satan's influence, you wouldn't be able to leave your house. In fact, it would be impossible for people to live in any kind of a society. Now, sometimes God gives Satan a little more room on his leash And this is when you see people rioting and looting and innocent people killed on our streets. It's when you see the minds of politicians blinded into inaction and they do nothing to ensure the safety of citizens. Now, thank God that he restrains the devil's use of the wickedness of our hearts. But the Bible teaches this restraint is for the sake of God's people. I mean, we live in the world, too. And to provide protection for those of us that are saved, this evil is restrained. And lost people just receive the benefit of God's protection as he protects his own people. Now, people that hate Christians and Christian influence don't understand that without us, they would never survive their own depravity. But there's more. The Bible also teaches that God's restraining power one day will be relaxed when Jesus returns and takes his people out of the world, then the protection that God provides for his people and for all people because of us will be removed. And this is what we read in 2 Thessalonians. Paul wrote, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. That's referring to the Holy Spirit. Letteth means restraint. And in the tribulation, After the rapture, the restraining power of the Holy Spirit will be removed, and then people will act out to the true depths of their depravity. Satan's restrictions will be lifted, and then people will find out how good God is and how terrible Satan is. But that's for lost people, and that's the tribulation sometime in the future. Our subject is God's people and how Satan uses his wiles to affect us today. Our topic in this message is one main method that Satan uses. These are the wiles 
of doubt. The wiles are his tricks. The devil is a trickster, and he's much more successful than wily coyote. He makes things appear as they are not. He makes things that are not appear as though they are. He works to destroy our effectiveness and our happiness in trying to make us doubt everything about the Christian life. He makes us doubt God. And, that, and that's the very first tactic that he used against Eve in the Garden of Eden. Did God say that? What are his wiles of doubt? Let me give you two specific areas that require us to use the armor of God to fight Satan. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Well, first, there are doubts about the experiences of salvation. Doubts about the experiences of salvation. And by experience, I mean everything that happens in the Christian life. The ups and the downs, the normal experiences of life, the emotions, the physical, the mental. All of these are areas that Satan influences with doubt. And he begins on day number one of your Christian life trying to put doubt into your mind. I mean, can anyone testify that in, in all the time that you've been saved that you never, you never had any doubt about what God does? In your troubles, have you ever doubted that God loves you? Uh, have you doubted God's fairness to you? Have you ever said, this just isn't fair? Have you debated in your mind whether God cares for you or is there for you? Can any of us say that since trusting Christ, I've never doubted about anything? Well, if you can, you're the most unusual Christian I've ever met. If you can, you're somehow an expert at fighting the devil. And I want to know what superpowers you got that I didn't get. Now, in Christian counseling, doubt is a frequent topic of discussion. When, when I discuss this, I want to be honest, and I want to tell people, and I want to confess that in my 60 years of being a believer, there have been periods of doubt. In my 60 years, I've studied the Bible from cover to cover. I've taught classes. I've preached thousands of sermons. I've done hundreds of Christian works, and still I have experienced doubt. And my doubts may be different than yours, but I confess in times of weakness when the devil is messing with my mind, that I've sat down and I've wondered, is this all real? What if I'm wrong about my religion? What if my faith is nothing but a product of the mind that makes me feel better about things? What if there is no God? That, doubt, that type of doubt comes sometimes, but I can also tell you that is a moment of doubt. And it's just that, just a moment. And the reason that it stays a moment is because when the devil messes with my mind, the Holy Spirit is still in my heart. And so I will not surrender to those doubts. I won't harbor them because I'm convinced by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit witnesses with my spirit that I am a child of God. And so I go back and I reflect on my experiences with God. I remember when I got saved. I remember times when I knew that God worked in me and internally spoke to me. I've seen God's hand at His providence in my life. And I know when His Word speaks to me. And so the reality overcomes the psychology. The objectivity overcomes the psychology. But when you doubt, don't let doubt itself, I mean the fact that there is doubt, fool you into thinking that you're not a Christian. 
Now, friends, if the devil would have the audacity to come to Jesus Christ and say to him, if thou be the Son of God, if the devil would come to him and try to sow seeds of doubt, then don't think that you're immune to this type of attack. And the devil is so sure of the tactic that he tried it on the eternal Son of God. If the devil tempted Jesus with doubt, he will tempt you. Now, this is not unusual. The greatest of God's saints were tempted with doubt. I think of Elijah under that juniper tree. We talked about him last week. He just won this amazing victory on Mount Carmel. And then he went into the wilderness in doubt. I think of Jonah who was thrown overboard. He spent three days and three nights pickled in a whale's belly. And he survived it by the grace of God. He went to Nineveh and preached and thousands were saved. But then after that, we find him crying his eyes out that a gourd that grew up and gave him shade from the heat withered and died. And he doubted God. I think of Thomas. We read about him a moment ago in John chapter 20. He was a disciple of Jesus. Now he, he has doubt as his distinguishing feature. He's always called Doubting Thomas. He walked with Jesus. He heard him teach. He saw the miracles. He listened to his prophecies about the resurrection. He saw people raised from the dead. And when Jesus died, he went into the tomb and later he arose. The other disciples said, we have seen Jesus. But he doubted. The doubt didn't stay because he was a child of God. Later, he made one of the greatest confessions of faith that are found in the gospel accounts. If you say that you have never doubted, then you are above the company of the greatest prophets and preachers and evangelists in the Holy Scriptures. Doubt is a part of the Christian life. I don't excuse it, but nonetheless it's real. And it begins when you begin. When you first begin become a Christian, you may doubt that you are really saved. Now, let's talk about that experience first. Doubts about conversion. Most of us are clear about the day that we were saved. Now, I know some people that are like me that were saved very early in their lives. And so after many years, they're sure of the experience. But the details of the experience and what they were doing at the time, that just might be a little bit fuzzy. I was saved when I was seven. I don't remember the message that was preached. I didn't write the date that I was saved in my Bible. In fact, I date the day of my salvation to the week before my baptism because there is a record of the day that I was baptized. So what do I remember? Well, I, I remember getting up from my seat in church. I, I couldn't sit and hold it in. I had to get up and tell my dad. My dad was preaching now, I wasn't saved by getting up and going to the front of the church. I was saved when I heard the word and believed in my heart. That's why I was seated, and getting up was my joyful response. Many of you were saved as adults. You know your experience very clearly. For many Christians, especially those that don't have a Christian family and didn't grow up in a Christian home, when they're saved, they go back to a family that isn't Christian. They, they return to an old job where there are no Christians. And at first they're on an emotional high. They feel great. But around them are all the old temptations. Your family doesn't care what happened. 
Your family doesn't change because you changed. They still do the same things. People at work didn't change. And so you could easily slip back into your old lifestyle. You're a new Christian. You haven't learned very much. You don't have much experience. And so you may find yourself back in sins that you used to commit. And this is when the devil comes and he hits hard. And he says, you weren't really saved. There's nothing that happened to you. You were caught up in the emotion of the moment. Look at you. Now you're back to the things you used to do. And Satan makes you think that the conversion experience wasn't real. The difficulties of the Christian life and trying to live it among your, your family and your old friends bogs you down. And Satan wins a victory with doubt. Because you're too new, because you're too inexperienced. When you don't know the devil's tactics, you surrender to this attack of doubt. And this is where many Christians languish for years. I've seen it happen in church ministries. A teenager or a child receives Christ. And because there is no Christian influence in the home, they drift off. And many times that teenager or child comes back to the faith. Many years later, they were saved and they were conquered by doubts about their conversion. And it was the doubt that kept them from growing and becoming fruitful. Now, if anyone listening doubts your conversion, remember that it's one of the wiles of the devil. Doubt is one of his biggest assets. Now, I'll tell you something about that, though. These doubts must be dispelled. And there is a method for ending doubt. We'll investigate that in the next message. And you must also beware that it could be more than doubt. It could be a lack of conversion. And so you must examine your heart today. What do you believe today? What are you doing today to see if you're really saved? Now, secondly, there are doubts about troubles. Doubts about troubles. When, when they're saved, many people think that all troubles should be over. Or if there are troubles, they should be very quickly dispensed. And they don't think that God would allow their troubles to be too painful. But you read more of Paul's experiences and honestly evaluate them and you'll be divested of that opinion very quickly. One of, one of the worst heresies that we find uh, in, in the world today is the teaching of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I've mentioned this many times, but maybe not so much uh, about it in the area of, 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 of assurance. Uh, this is a doctrine that was invented to line the pockets of preachers and ministries. And if not for that, it wouldn't exist. It doesn't stand the scrutiny of Scripture. This is a devastating doctrine for increasing rather than decreasing doubt. You see, when people are taught that when their health gets bad or they are in financial trouble, when that hits them hard and and they're told they don't have enough faith or it's because of sin that puts doubt into their minds whether they are really saved. They say, if I'm saved, I shouldn't have these problems. I'm not healthy or wealthy like the preacher says because I'm not really a child of God. Because God makes his children healthy and wealthy. It's one of the wiles of the devil. It's a lie. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is a man-centered gospel. Its focus is man. It has nothing to do with God. And this is the exact reason that Jesus told his disciples, don't take any thought for tomorrow. Don't worry about what will happen to you tomorrow. Don't worry about your physical provisions. He said in Matthew 10, 
provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. But the prosperity gospel works the opposite. It forces Christians to deal with the material. And so, therefore, the lack of the material is evidence of a false confession. And this is exactly how Satan attacked Job. Job was wealthy. He had a fine family. Had it all. And when God permitted Satan to take it from him, Satan sent miserable comforters. And through them and even through his wife, Job was told, this thing has come upon you because of sin. God has forsaken you. God is angry at you. God is punishing you. It's one of the wiles of the devil. Troubles don't mean that you're not a child of God. Sickness and financial failure... It may have nothing at all to do with sin in your life. It may be God's test. It may be God's method of training you. And even if it is because of sin, you ought, it ought to bring you hope, not despair. The hardest way to find out that you are a child of God is by chastisement. And that is a method that God uses. Take comfort if God chastises you as a son because he doesn't chastise anyone who's not his child. The experience of troubles can cause Christians to doubt. And there is no need to doubt because none less than the apostle who wrote this was afflicted and God didn't remove his affliction. Now thirdly, there are doubts about failures. Now perhaps I've, I've touched on this a little already. The devil sows seeds of doubt when you fall into sin. And I don't want to give anyone false hope or comfort by saying, well, we all sin, so just get over it. As if it's common to fall into sin and we have an excuse. Well, yes, it is common. Everyone sins, but no one has an excuse. But we don't tend to worry too much about our salvation when we think that we've committed the little sins. Yes, we all sin. Many Christians have nagging sins. Ah, oh, but we say we don't do the big things. We're not adulterers and we're not murderers. We're not thieves. But then what happens when you fall into one of the big ones? What happens if there is adultery? Satan comes and he says, ah, you're not a Christian. There's no Christian who would do such a thing. Apostle John gives insight. He writes in 1 John, we know that whatsoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself and that wicked one toucheth him not. What's John talking about? I mean, does he mean that born-again believers don't sin? Well, he's not talking here about committing one sin. He's speaking of habitual sin. It's not in the heart of a believer to continue in sin. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talked about a man in Corinth who was involved in an ongoing sin. He wouldn't confess it. He didn't repent. And so Paul said, you've got to expel that guy from your membership. And this man was to be treated as an unbeliever because believers don't continue in sin. Believers repent. Well, the man finally did repent, and that was evidence he was a believer. He was involved in gross sin, and he failed, but he was forgiven. If you failed, it's not a sign that you aren't saved. If you don't repent and forsake your sin, that's a sign that you aren't saved. So don't let the devil fool you into thinking that because you committed one of the big ones that you aren't a child of God. David is evidence. He was guilty of lying, adultery, and murder, but he was a child of God. 
Now, no child of God wants to be involved in such sins. It brings horrible consequences when you do. You don't want to deal with those consequences, because you, but because you fail in any way does not mean that you are not a child of God. Now, when the devil comes with this while, you say to yourself, have I repented? Is there godly sorrow over my sin? Am I sorry because I got caught? Now, if you quit the sin and say, I repent because I have offended God, that's a sign of salvation. So that's the first area. The devil uses doubt in our Christian experiences, and you need to recognize the lie. Now, the second area, which is closely related, is doubts about the assurance of salvation. Now, in one sense, all that we've talked about is about assurance, but I'd like to be more specific and think about certain questions that arise about assurance. The first question, is assurance possible? Is it possible? Can you know that you're saved? Now, when I speak of assurance, understand I'm not talking about eternal security. Doctrinally, you can be sure of eternal security. The problem is not, are you safe and secure? The problem is, did you get that first part? Are you saved? Now, when you get the assurance of salvation, then you do know that you are saved forever. But some teach that you can never have the assurance. I even know one person who, who wrote that we who believe in the doctrines of grace can never have assurance of our salvation because we're never sure that we are the elect of God. Now, there's nothing... That is nothing but ignorance of Scripture. I know that I'm the elect of God because I'm saved. The Spirit witnesses with my spirit that I am a child of God. And if a child of God, I must be the elect of God. So I've never worried a moment about whether I am the elect of God. But there are some who teach you can never have assurance. This is one of the main doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. They teach it is utterly impossible to have assurance. And it becomes a basis for priesthood. It becomes a basis for the intercession of the priesthood. It's the basis for purgatory and the prayer for dead saints. It's the basis for indulgences and paying the church to get people out of purgatory. They say you can't be sure. And so you must keep up all of these activities and maybe you'll make it, but you never know. Their catechism says that anyone who teaches assurance of salvation is cursed. But the Bible says it is possible to have assurance. Not only is it possible, but God wants you to know that the basis of your hope and happiness lies in your assurance. Apostle John wrote to people who were struggling with this issue in persecution and turmoil. They began to wonder, have we believed in vain? Are, are we really saved? Because it sure doesn't look like it. Not with all this trouble John wrote to give them assurance he said in 1 John 5:13 these things have i written unto you that believe on the name of the son of god that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the son of god in 1 John chapter 5 that chapter is filled with no 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 six times it's k n o w it says no we know god wants us to be assured most definitely it is possible to know you are saved. Secondly, Christians ask, what happened to the feeling? And that, that's one of the most often asked questions about assurance. What happened to the feeling? I don't feel saved anymore. 
I used to love to read the Bible. I used to love to pray. And I was riding the emotional high. What happened to the feeling? Well, if you run across someone who's never had ups and downs in the Christian life, I doubt seriously whether they are saved. And the devil loves to play with our emotions. He wants to move us out of the area of thinking about the relationship that we have with God to the emotional experience that may accompany it. One of the things that you find very quickly, if you search this, you find out about charismatic churches, they don't care very much for doctrine. They strive for emotional highs. And they don't really need the Bible or its doctrines to, to achieve it. In charismatic churches, you, you, you won't hear expositions about justification by faith. Oh, oh, you may hear about faith in money or faith in the way that you can live your Christian life. But to deal with that justifying aspect of faith, they don't really pay much attention to it. You won't hear any of the great doctrines of the faith because it takes too much time away from dealing with the emotions of the spirit. I love to pick on Joel Osteen. You know this. Um, he, he's the face of much of this nonsense. And I heard an interview with him on television about his book entitled Become a Better You. And the interviewer quoted a passage from his book. This is what he read to him. To become a better you, now he's reading the words of Osteen back to him. To become a better you, you must be positive towards yourself, develop better relationships, embrace the place where you are. And the interviewer stopped and he said, not one mention of God in that. Not one mention of Jesus Christ in that. That's the interviewer. And I have no idea whether he was saved, but he pegged Osteen. These are guys that are not interested in doctrine. They're interested in your feelings. How do you feel about yourself? Listen to another part of the interview. Osteen said, this is what he wrote. Well, I think, or no, rather, this is what he said about what he wrote. Well, I think that most people already know what they're doing wrong. And for me to get in here and just beat them down and talk down to them, I just don't think that inspires anybody to rise higher. But I want to motivate. I want to motivate every person to leave here to be a better father, a better husband, to break addictions, to come up higher in their walk with the Lord. And then the interviewer said, I mean, is that being a pastor or is that being Dr. Phil or Oprah? And Osteen replied, no, I think we use God's word. I think the principles that you hear Dr. Phil and some of the others talk about many times are right out of the Bible. Folks, if you go to Dr. Phil and Oprah and Joel Osteen to get the Bible, you went to the wrong place. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is not built on feelings and not whether you can think positively and make yourself a better you. There's no assurance in that because every time you try to make a better you, you will fail. Not even Jesus Christ is interested in making a better you. He's not interested in a better you. He's interested in a new creature who's nothing like you. He's interested in the new birth and a relationship with him where the Holy Spirit takes you and makes you something completely different from what you were. So whatever you feel makes no difference at all. It's the relationship that counts. When you feel down, don't let the devil put doubt in your mind. Don't think, well, I can't be a Christian because I don't feel like a Christian today. Feelings will deceive you. It's the relationship that counts. It's the objective truth of faith in Jesus Christ that counts. And you can feel good about yourself all that you want and feel good all the way into hell. Emotions are tricks 
through the wiles of the devil. Now thirdly, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Sometimes Christians ask this. Have I committed the unpardonable sin? Now, if you've asked that question, you needn't feel like you're alone. And I don't plan to get into an exposition of the unpardonable sin in this message. But there are some people who read the scriptures and they see it and they want to know, have I committed the unpardonable sin? And the devil comes to them with the attack of doubt and he makes the believer feel so bad about something he's done. And in depression, this causes a person to wonder, have I committed the unpardonable sin? And he thinks, I can't get out of the sin that I'm doing. I repent. I go back to it. I say that I'm sorry to God. I do it over. I keep struggling and fighting. Is this the unpardonable sin? In Matthew 12, Jesus talks about this sin. He says, Matthew 12, 31 and 32, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. Neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Now sometime or another we may get into the question of whether the sin can be committed today. But for now, let me say that this sin is to ridicule the Holy Spirit. It's to say that Christ's work is not done by him, but is done by the power of the Spirit, and it is proud and arrogant denial of the power of Jesus Christ. What are characteristics of this sin? Well, the people that committed it cared nothing at all about what they did and what they said and what they accused. They proudly and arrogantly rejected truth, and they would never ask the question, Have I committed the unpardonable sin? Because it doesn't matter to them if they committed any sin. Well, the very fact that someone would ask the question and wonder about it is proof positive they haven't committed the sin. So don't let the devil put this doubt in your mind. I've committed a sin from which there is no return. No, if if you've asked that question, you've already got the answer. You've already defeated the devil's lie. You haven't committed the unpardonable sin. Now, I'm going to stop there. Next week, we're going to talk about more wiles of the devil. Next time, we'll talk about how the devil uses confusion to fool us. We'll talk about temptations and worry and discouragement. And we'll get into self-examination of salvation and more about the confusion of problems. And this is preparation for the next part, putting on the armor of God. And you must do it because the devil is working in every phase of your life, in your health, in your finances, your emotions, your psyche. All of that's fair game for the devil. And you need this this armor of protection over every faculty of your existence. Put on the armor and stand And you're on your way to assurance and to springing all of those traps before they catch you. And this happens when you have a desire to serve Christ and you're willing to take up every avenue of defense. Now, if you're caught in one of the devil's snares, don't stay there. There's the way out of them. Better understanding of God's word and of Satan's methods, equating yourself with this, that's the way out. And so the scripture says, put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wilds of the devil.
Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you again for salvation in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the protection that we find in this passage. And as we work our way into the next part of this, talking about the armor of protection that you provide for us, help us to get a better understanding of these issues that we've talked about today, how the devil so often uses doubt. We've all experienced it. Sometimes those doubts are hard to get out from under. And doubt is fueled by sin in our life. And so what we, we must do is examine our lives, confess our sin, repent of that, get away from it. And that helps dispel these issues of doubt. We pray for those uh, in our church now that see all the, the problems that are going on. And we wonder sometimes, where are you, Lord? Where are you in all of this? And why is it so hard for us? And why can't we, why can't we get into church? Why aren't you doing something about that? And we don't understand all of your ways. As your word says, your ways are above our ways. It's past our finding out. All that we can do is just keep returning to the word of God to find our confidence and our assurance that you are the God who is in control of all things. And help us to remember that. And most of all, right now, we just pray that you would keep your people strong and committed to the faith and not to drift away especially not to drift away under the wiles of the devil. So we thank you, Lord. We ask you to be with us. Bless our people. Uh, bless everyone listening to this message today. And we pray that it will be taken and used effectively in our lives to make us better servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. And now we come to our final word of benediction. And this is a good word. The Bible always is. It always helps us. We need to read more of it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, a great passage that the Apostle Peter wrote to one of my favorites. And here is assurance found in these verses. And Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter gives us no words of doubt in that passage. God has already reserved everything for us in our heavenly home. Everyone be safe. We'll see you next time. God be with you. God's blessings be upon you. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Broner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.